Hey friends, Merry Christmas and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host Brian Motes and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, released on Christmas Eve 2019, we're going to continue our series that we began at the beginning of Advent and that will see us through Epiphany. Here, Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers are going to discuss Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 40, which is the presentation of Jesus in the temple. This ends up being a very interesting discussion about why Jesus was at a purification offering when he is without sin. As always, there is a link in the show notes to sign up for our weekly newsletter in Medias Race. There's also a link to a piece by Dave Shaw that Peter Lightheart mentions during this episode. With that, we hope that you enjoy this episode and that you are encouraged during this Christmas season. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers discussing the presentation in the temple in Luke chapter 2. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers and Alistair Roberts. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background and keeping the uh, the train's running on time. Merry Christmas to you all. Blessings on this anniversary and celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. We at Theopolis are we're glad to share in the joy of this season with you, and we hope that uh, this podcast and the other ones we've been doing during Advent have deepened your understanding of the birth of Jesus and have helped to enhance your Christmas celebrations and your worship of our Lord during this time. Uh, we're in the middle of a series of studies in, and discussions of the early chapters of the Gospel of Luke. We started this uh, just before Advent, and we're going to continue for a couple more weeks uh, or another week or so beyond this. And we're covering the, the stories of the Annunciations uh, of John and Jesus, the birth of birth and circumcision of John, uh, the birth of Jesus that we talked about in the last episode. Uh, and this week we're going to talk about the events that take place in the temple when Jesus is presented there as the firstborn and Joseph and Mary go into the temple in order to in order to carry out the rites of purification. Um, I know what you're thinking, though. We, we've gone uh, an entire Advent. I think we've done an entire Advent series, and I don't know that anyone has uttered the word chiasm in any of the episodes that we've recorded for this season. And uh, I think... Everyone who listens to this podcast is thinking, what is Christmas without a chiasm? Uh, it's like uh, you're taking the key out of Christmas, and that's just, uh, it's not in keeping with the season. Uh, it occurred to me that there is a kind of chiastic structure. There are other kinds of structures going on in the early chapters of Luke, but it does seem to me like you have a, a kind of chiasm, if you're, especially if you're following the locations of the events that are taking place in these, in these chapters. We begin in the temple with uh, Gabriel's annunciation of John's birth to Zecharias. Uh, we're coming back to the temple now in chapter 2, beginning in verse 21, when Jesus is being presented there. We'll be in the temple again uh, in the last part of Luke 2, when Jesus is in the temple at the age of 12, uh, visiting for the Passover. So the, the birth stories, the first two chapters of Luke are are. Uh, framed by scenes in the temple. Uh, then Gabriel shows up in Nazareth and announces Jesus' birth to Mary. In the last episode, we talked about the early, uh, the first uh, the first uh, third or so of chapter two, 
that doesn't take place in Nazareth, but it does describe a movement from Nazareth to, Beth, Nazareth to Bethlehem. So that there's a, uh, and it's about the birth of Jesus. So the Annunciation that takes place in the uh, in Nazareth is being fulfilled in Bethlehem. So those two events correspond to each other. And then Mary goes to a city of Judah in chapter one to visit with Elizabeth, and uh, there she sings her Magnificat. It seem it must be in that same region where you have the scene of the circumcision of, of John, uh, it doesn't, as far as I could see, it doesn't tell us exactly where that's taking place, but uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth have gathered their neighbors and their relatives. This is, sounds, like a, a, sounds like a home occasion. So again, taking place in, presumably taking place in the city of Judah where Zacharias and Elizabeth live. Zacharias in the opening scene is in Jerusalem serving as a priest, but uh, like many priests, he doesn't live in Jerusalem or uh, he he lives in he li- apparently lives in a different city uh, in in the tribal area of Judah at least. So it seems like you have that symmetry: the temple on either side, uh, the Nazareth and the movement from Nazareth to Bethlehem, the B and B prime, and then within that you have the uh, visit of Mary and uh, the circumcision of John. And one of the one of the effects of that is to highlight the two songs that are uh, so prominent have been so prominent in the history of Christian worship. Uh, Mary's Magnificat and the Benedictus of Zacharias are placed are the, the songs right at the center of that structure. The first as uh, a response to uh, the Lord's grace to Mary, and the other as a Zacharias's celebration of the birth of and circumcision of John. So we put the chiasm back in Christmas, and now now you can now your uh, Christmas celebrations can kick into high gear. <laughs> you put the X back into Xmas. <laughs> well, let me let me just start off this and say that this section from 21 to 40 um, might seem like uh, some filler, like getting some details about Jesus' early life as a child out of the way in order to get to the more important stuff. But I don't think that's the case at all, obviously. And uh, But what Luke is doing here seems to be giving us a context for understanding and accepting Jesus or trusting him. You know, I, I put it like this. If someone comes to my door uh, wanting to sell me something, especially wanting to sell me something like um, uh, financial services or something, I don't know the person. I don't have a context for them. I don't know their background. I don't know their history. I don't know their success or failures. I'm not going to entrust my finances to that person. Uh, and so Luke writing to Theophilus in the God-fearing community wants them to know that they can trust Jesus. And the way to do that is to commend Jesus to them by ensuring that they know he's fully embedded in the core of Israel's life as God's chosen people. He's an Israelite, he's a Jew, he's a Judahite, he's a line of David. Um, and so we get, and so because he's, uh, in a, in a faithful Jewish family, we get circumcision, sacrifice, obedience to the law of God in his presentation in temple, the spirit's presence. We get a prophet, we get a prophetess. And we know that after reading this, we know that everything Israel was called to be, uh, everything she was chosen to do in the world, all of it now makes sense in relationship to this new child, Jesus. This is why Israel was chosen to prepare the way for the coming seed of Abraham, the anointed one, the Messiah. And so their entire way of life is is encapsulated here. And it turns out that it's all uh, making sense with uh, in, in, in relationship to this child, this boy. It's important to try to specify what exactly is going on here. 
uh, there are two different events or two different requirements that uh, Mary and Joseph are fulfilling uh, that are put together at the same in the same context. Uh, one of them has to do with their purification from childbirth. That's what's mentioned in verse 22, and that's laid out in Leviticus 12. There's a different uh, time frame for a, a male child as opposed to a female child, but at the end of a 40 or an 80-day period, a woman has to come out of her impurity because of childbirth and offer an offering. That means a, that means a trip to the sanctuary, and that's what they're doing according to verse 22. The presentation of Jesus as the firstborn, though, is a di- it's a it's a distinct thing. They may be doing it at the same time, but it's still a dis- distinct thing. This tied in with the Passover. The quotation in verse twenty three, uh, "Every firstborn that opens up the womb shall be called holy to the Lord," is a reference back to Exodus thirteen, where the Lord is laying out the requirements. Well, uh, Exodus twelve is the passage about the Passover and includes instructions about how to continue the Passover. Chapter 13 includes this instruction about firstborn and how the Lord has claimed the firstborn by delivering the firstborn in the Passover. So, uh, one of the ways that Israel commemorates the, that single event of the Passover through the centuries is by giving every, devoting every, uh, every firstborn child or every firstborn beast, clean beast, to the Lord and it becomes the Lord. Uh, you, have a, you have elaborate replacement in the book of Numbers where the, the, the Levites take the place of the uh, firstborn. The firstborn don't actually go to the temple and serve, but the Levites are, are the ones who are taking the place of the firstborn. They're the, they're the uh, uh, ritual or symbolic firstborn. Uh, but Israel Israelites still have to take their firstborn sons and offer them, uh, dedicate them to the Lord. So that brings Passover themes into view in the passage. Those two distinct things are both going on here when Mary and Joseph get to the temple. Further thing perhaps we could reflect upon are the, again, the symmetries between this and later parts of Christ's story. As we get to the book of Acts, there is another 40-day period there, the 40-day period that um, comes before the ascension of Christ. And so between his birth from the dead and his ascension entering into the heavenly temple there's a 40-day period much as there is a 40-day period of purification here we should reflect a bit on 21 to the eight days uh, after eight days he was circumcised so the first time this is called attention to numerous occasions and commentators but it's it's worth reminding ourselves that the first day the first time that jesus blood was shed is when he receives the name that the angel had given him, uh, uh, Yahshua, uh, Yahweh saves, Yahweh delivers, um, and of all the <laughs> of all the hundreds and thousands, maybe millions of infants born of Israelite women who've been circumcised, here is one who bore our death nature and is the one who. Uh, all of this is again. I'll say it again. It, it all comes to a head. It all comes to a point with this with this child. Uh, he's the one who's going to bring in a resurrected, uh, immortal human nature um, when he is circumcised on the cross, and a new flesh emerges from the tomb on the eighth day. Yeah, and and it's uh, the, you have again the connection between circumcision and naming which we had in uh, the end of chapter one, the, the scene of John's circumcision and the dispute that arises about what his name could be. 
In both cases, the name that's given is the name that the angel gives. John, as we have talked about earlier, is uh, Yah, Hana, uh, related to that, that, uh, that Hebrew phrase, uh, Yah is gracious or Yah is merciful, something along those lines. So that those heavenly names are now given, uh, and they're given at the time of the circumcision. Uh, I want to point to an article on the Theopolis website. Dave Shaw, uh, who's been a, uh, a regular at Theopolis courses, he a, was a Beeson Divinity School student at the time he wrote this, but we have an article called Anna of Asher, and Dave goes through the, especially the latter part of this passage and looking at what we know about the prophetess Anna, uh, why we're told the details that we are. But one of the points he makes, which is, a, is an interesting one, an important one, is the way that you have a double witness in the temple. Uh, it's not just Simeon who says uh, that this is the light of revelation of the Gentiles, but it's also Anna who comes. We don't hear what she says, but she knows that this is this is what she's been waiting for. And she continues to speak of him to all those who are looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. So uh, we have a, a double witness, which we also have. At, this is another of the symmetries that we've been talking about at the end of the gospel when Jesus is raised from the dead. He walks to the Emmaus with two disciples, and then they uh, recognize him in the breaking of bread. So we have a kind of a double witness scene at either end of the gospel. Uh, we have a, a male and a female witness, a prophet and a prophetess, uh, which um, that um, I think, uh, uh, and certainly at the end of the gospel, when you have the two disciples, their eyes are opened and they recognize Jesus. There's an allusion to Genesis. Uh, Genesis 3, rather, where their eyes are open as they eat the forbidden fruit. The man and the woman prophet in the temple may have a distant allusion to Adam and Eve witnessing to the coming of the new Adam. But that, that double witness, I think, is a is an important part of this uh, and fits with other things we've been saying about the the importance of conformity to the law. Everything that the Lord is doing, everything Mary and Joseph are doing conforms to the law, and the Lord is fulfilling the law in the way he's, uh, his own requirement of a double witness and the way he's organizing these events. The character of Simeon is also interesting on that front with his connection with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been profoundly active in these opening chapters of Luke in ways that um, we don't see to quite the same extent again until the beginning of Acts, where again we'll see an emphasis upon the temple, people being filled with the Holy Spirit and other things like that. But Simeon is introduced to us as one who is righteous, devoutly waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit is upon him. And then he comes in the Spirit into the temple. It's not the sort of language that we'd usually expect um, for this period of history. But yet the Spirit is clearly at work. There are things that are afoot and the Spirit has been preparing the ground. He's dealing with Simeon in the same way as we'll see Christ being led in the spirit into the wilderness in chapter four. So I wonder whether we're supposed to again recognize something of um, what's happening here as an anticipation of the later Pentecostal gift at, again in the context of the temple. Yeah, I think that's right. The, the, the opening of Acts is... Uh is in some ways recapitulating the opening of Luke. And one of the, one of the links is the spirit. And I just, I'd point out also that um, there's a triple reference to the spirit. The spirit is upon him. Verse 26 says, uh, he knows that he won't see death until he's seen the Christ by the Holy spirit. And then the spirit takes him into the temple. So you have a, a triple reference to the spirit in connection with Simeon. 
But it, yeah, I think it is a kind of proto-Pentecostal movement, just as the sun is invading Earth uh, in the incarnation. The spirit, the spirit is actually the agent by which the sun invades Earth. The spirit is the one by whom Jesus is conceived, and the spirit is active in the in in not just in in the conception of Jesus, but active in all these other people around the time of his um, around the time of his birth. And there are other odd connections that I'm not sure how much to make of them because they're quite weak taken by themselves, but maybe suggestive taken in the aggregate. The emphasis of Simeon's prophecy is very much upon the message being delivered out to the Gentiles. Um, he's the glory of the people Israel, but much of his statement is concerned that this is a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Then there's the fact that there's one other character called Simeon in Luke's corpus, and that character is Peter in chapter 15 of Acts. And so you have Peter giving a sermon on the day of Pentecost, and you have Simeon here. Simeon is someone who speaks about a sword um, piercing through your own soul. And Peter's word cuts people to the heart. And I wonder whether there's some greater pattern and symmetry that's being worked out by Luke here that he wants us to see an initial temple event um, connected to Christ entering into the temple after his purification. And then after his death and resurrection, there is a second temple event of witness with the men and the women there and um, bearing witness to Christ to all the people in Jerusalem. So Simeon means heard, uh, Shema, uh, goes back to Genesis 29. That's Leah's uh, second, I believe. Um, and so Simeon is a man who has heard from the Holy Spirit uh, to wait for uh, the Lord's Messiah. And then he sees, uh, he comes into the temple and sees the child and uh, his song, of course, is all about his eyes have seen. So there's a movement from hearing to seeing. Um, and that seems to me to be uh, representative of Israel as a whole, especially righteous Israel, um, because Simeon was a man who was righteous and devout. Uh, righteous Israel, hearing of the Messiah, and now the Messiah is here and seeing it and the response of Simeon is a good one. Um, also, Anna is a representative of Israel, uh, daughter Israel. Uh, pretty obvious with the numbers there. Um, she's 84 years old, and she's been seven years a virgin since her husband died, seven plus 77. Um, and she stands in the temple as a representative. And also 84 is seven times 12. Well, yeah, seven times 12. Good point. So she's in the temple uh, doing exactly what Israel ought to be doing, at least representing Israel, worshiping and fasting and praying and waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So once again, we have uh, Luke uh, pointing out that there are a lot of faithful people here, a lot more than maybe uh, the, the God-fearing Gentiles at the time of Paul's activity uh, in the Oikomene was willing to to admit because of the way Jerusalem was treating the new Christians. There's a, there's a lot of um, faithfulness here uh, in these early chapters. And Anna fasting and praying in the temple should also remind us of Hannah at the beginning of the book mm. of First Samuel. Yeah. She's again fasting and praying in the temple, not being recognized by the high priest, but 
that's the place where everything is happening. She's the one that through that prayer, God is going to turn the tables, change the situation. And again, we have an Anna praying faithfully here in a way that represents the whole nation. Luke elsewhere in his gospel will use the number, will use numbers in connection with particular characters to stress associations with Israel. So the woman with the issue of blood has had that situation for 12 years. Jairus's daughter, with whose story hers is connected, again is a 12-year-old child. And so here we have another Israel-like woman who is representing this faithful Israel praying in the temple, but not being recognized. Yeah, and there's another Samuel allusion right at the end of this section in verse 40, where Jesus goes to uh, settle in Nazareth, and he continues to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God is upon him, which is a paraphrase of read about Samuel early in the in the book of Samuel. Uh, I wonder, too, uh, Jeff's suggestion that uh, we have uh, his reminder that Simeon is the name of one of Leah's sons. Uh, Asher is one of Leah's sons, too. Asher is the ancestor of Anna, and I wonder if there's a if we if we see here some kind of acknowledgement. The, the the fact that her tribal association is named at all is pretty uh, pretty striking, uh, and she's acknowledging this descendant of David as king. So uh, I wonder if there's some hint of uh, a restoration of of Israel, the full Israel, because we have these two uh, names of tribes that were not part of Judah uh, that are now acknowledging him. Well, the Simeon, I guess, was was. Uh, somewhat integrated into Judah at one point, wasn't it, at, at some point? Anyway, the, uh, I wonder if, there, wonder if it's possible that we have some kind of reunion of Israel and Judah that's implied there. Well, we at least have this um, well, yeah, this idea that the ten tribes were totally lost and they're gone, you know, and they, you know, they moved up to uh, uh, the UK or something like that. Um, uh, <laughs> here is, here is uh, a tribe of Asher. Uh, so the, there's a number of places in scriptures that, uh, that tell us that that whole idea of the 10 lost tribes is silly, but this is one of them. Might also reflect here upon just the significance of Christ's body. Um, on a number of these events that we're reading about in the nativity story, Christ isn't active in the way that we think of him being active in the course of his earthly ministry. These are events where he's conceived, he's born, He's circumcised, he's presented, and often we may lose sight of just how important it is that Christ gives his body um, for us. It's not just a matter of Christ acting on our behalf, but Christ comes in a human body, and that body, the events that befall that body, are often the most important things within his story, not just actions and teachings, but the fact that he is conceived, he's born, he's circumcised, he's presented, he's baptized, the spirit descends upon his body, his body is transformed in transfiguration, his body is crucified, his body is buried, raised again, ascends into heaven. And that bodily immediacy of what Christ is doing is something that testifies in part to the significance of every human body, that Christ is redeeming Adamic humanity, not merely in its abstract souls, but in its bodily reality. I think also just the importance of Christ in his humanity. Christ doesn't just appear as a divine teacher in some sort of um, human-like avatar, 
but he's someone who is truly one of us and his body and the incarnation are central truths. Can I ask you this, uh, both of you, this question related to that, I was going to bring this up, but your comments about uh, the body of Jesus is, is helpful, uh, Alistair. And that is a systematic theological, maybe Christological question here. Um, the human nature of Jesus being subject to uh, and needed to be circumcised, and then also Mary needing to be purified after the birth of Jesus, seems to me to point to the fact that Jesus' uh, humanity is mortal. Um, it's post-fall humanity. It's not pre-fall, pristine, edemic, uh, new uh, new kind of human nature. It's it's our human nature. It's uh, he's born of of Mary of her substance, um, and that mortality uh, is uh, something he's going to ha- he he has chosen to live with, uh, and of course then on the cross and at resurrection transfigure and transform our human nature, uh, making it immortal. Um, but at this point, he is subject to all of the common ritual purification laws uh, that any ordinary mortal human being is subject to. I'd uh, agree with the theological point. One of my seminary professors said that Jesus came in dilapidated human nature. Paul says he appeared in the flesh, which is the biblical way to say dilapidated human nature. But I, I wonder about the latter part, because um, the purification is is not for Jesus. The purification is for Mary's childbirth, and that would seem to have that seems to more have more to do. There's a connection within Leviticus 12 between childbirth and the uncleanness of childbirth is compared to the uncleanness of menstruation. So the it's not the it's not the uncleanness of the born child. It's the woman's uh, the flow from her flesh that defiles her that she needs to cleanse. I think uh, I guess if I were making it drawing a dogmatic point from that, it would be more about uh, Mary as a immaculately conceived she obviously is subject to impurity because she has to be purified so I, I, that's the direction i would see it and i think you know what 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 would happen i would think uh okay we we've gotten chiasms in there now since it's the it's time for a little crudity surely jesus had um nocturnal emissions right he had emissions from his flesh because he's man uh, he had he he grew up uh, through puberty did he need to cleanse himself from that? And I guess my answer would be no, because the reason why that's maybe, maybe I maybe I need to think this, but uh, does he have a death nature? Is he he's under the curse? He's in the flesh, but does that mean that he's carrying around a death nature that would require cleansing? Maybe I'll just leave it as a question. That would be a way to ask the same question, I guess. Another way to frame the issue would be to compare it with his baptism, where John the Baptist says, um, "Why are you coming to me to be baptized? I have need to be baptized of you." But Jesus still persists that to do it to fulfill all righteousness and questioning why he would be baptized in some ways is not dissimilar from questioning why he would be circumcised or presented in the temple at on the 40th day. Um, it seems to me in part it's a matter of association and identification with his people, even if not for his own sake, it's a sign of solidarity with them and that he takes upon their condition in order that he might deliver them and us through it. Right. And, and that solidarity, it goes all the way down. I mean, his human nature is uh, our mortal 
human nature. I'm not sure uh, what the difference is in saying that Jesus was a mortal man and that he had a death nature. Uh, and Peter, I'm not, not to push back. I'm just ask this question. It seemed, isn't it true though, that whatever comes out of man, whether issues out of man uh, or woman, um, is uh, is what makes us unclean. So that uh, the woman giving birth to uh, uh, a child, the child coming out, well, when that child comes out, um, that makes her unclean. Um, so. Uh, I mean, I, I, it seems to me like she would not have been unclean if this was a, a pristine, pure, pre-edemic kind of human nature that Jesus had. She could just skip all that purification stuff. I, I may be entirely yeah. wrong. Yeah, about yeah I'd have to. I'm, I'm gonna. I'm gonna somewhat retract what I said because I, I need to think more about this. I get I, the thing. One part of the thing in, my, in the background is, you know, Jesus touches dead bodies, uh, and we've made the point for a long time that when he mm-hmm. touches a dead body. Life flows from him and raises the dead body. The woman with the flow of blood doesn't contaminate mm-hmm. him, True. but she's cleansed. Right. But maybe we right. should see that going in a kind of a double direction, and that he, in fact, is taking on. I mean, it's it's in that it's in the context of healing that Matthew quotes from Isaiah fifty three and says that he bears our iniquities. Uh, it's not in the context of the cross. It's when he's um, healing people. So maybe that maybe the dynamic is not simply that he's full of life and life flows out of him, but that he is able to give life because he's taking on their uncleannesses. I, I still wonder what would, would would Jesus have had to go through the week week long rite of purification from corpse defilement every time he touched a dead body? Is that would that have been required of him, uh, or uh, is is he have to wash uh, at the end of the day after the woman? with the flow of blood touches the, his garment, does he have to go home and wash at the end of the day in order to be clean, as he would if he were functioning by the law of the purity? But, but Peter, isn't that the same question as asking, would Jesus really have had to been circumcised? Would he really have had to roll away the old flesh? Would he really have had to be, um, would his mother had to be purified in the temple? Would they have to offer a sacrifice for him? I mean, it seems like that's the same kinds of questions. Uh, maybe not. No, it does. You're right. It, I think you're right that there is a parallel there. I just need to. I'm gonna. I'm gonna fully withdraw my initial answer because I need to step back and think about it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think I, I, I'll say again that there, there, whatever is going on, I think there would be two sides of it, and whatever, sure, whatever uncleanness attaches to Jesus, it. He is able. He's taking it on himself in order to withdraw it from others. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, so yes. I, uh, and maybe that, so. I want to maintain that he he's the healer who's removing uncleanness and giving life. But the dynamic by which he does that is by taking on the death that they have. So that would that would uh, that would be a way of uh, uh, that that just affirms your original point that he's. He's so, he's got a mortal nature. He's flesh. I really hadn't thought through thoroughly enough what it meant for Jesus to be in the flesh. But I think you're you're convincing me that he would have been under all the laws of purity. But it's it's a will. You're right. It's a willing acceptance of our condition, and it seems that that's all comes to a point at the cross because Jesus willingly uh, gives himself up to death. Uh, this is the the, the, the climax, if you will, of his mortal human nature, 
uh, in order in order to take it from us, in order to relieve us from um, from that. So, well, I think that uh, uh, this is a, a good place to close. Nothing is more Christmassy than talking about issues from the flesh uh, and purification uh, <laughs> rights uh, and how Jesus, Jesus <laughs> our Lord, cleanses us from all sin. He's taken our impurities, uncleannesses, and iniquities on himself. Uh, he's come in our flesh to bear the curse of our flesh. And that truly is the message of Christmas. We want to get down to the nitty-gritty details, uh, which we've tried to do here. Then uh, that's what Jesus is delivering us from. So Merry Christmas to all of those in the listening audience and uh, blessings through this Christmas season. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.